to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, creativity, and community. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. Today I'm going to talk about law. Some laws that you may not know exist. They're really not laws, but they're, what's a wonderful word that I only learned a couple years ago, heuristics. So shortcuts, ways of thinking about things that are suddenly very illustrating. And I'll get to one of them definitely. Maybe I'll get to the second one this week, or maybe I'll get to the second one next week. Depends on how it all goes. These are laws that when you are in the middle of struggle, when you're in the middle of an issue, when you're in the middle of trying to figure out why things aren't working as smoothly and with the ease that they could, it's time to pull out this kind of law and see whether it is applying because it will direct you in the right direction. The first of these laws is called Conway's Law. Conway's Law comes out of software engineering and specifically Microsoft. If you look up Conway's Law on Google and you look for images, there's a very, very funny image that reflects Conway's Law. So it goes like this. The product that you produce is a direct match to the communication within the organization. So the outcome reflects the quality of communication inside the group. And you can use for your group anything. You can use a group that's been assigned to do a group project. You can use a family. You can use a team and a business. You can use the entire business. And when you think about it, when you back up a little bit, of course it makes sense. It makes the most possible sense. And the illustration that's so great is it shows a couple of options for organizing people, right? You could organize them hierarchically. Someone's in charge, king is in charge, and the peasants all do what they say, whatever, the lord's in in the middle, basically a chessboard, hierarchical. You could do kind of power sharing. And so those are both shown with a graph. And the third graph, instead of little dots connected to one another, the lines end in little guns and all the different areas are actively shooting each other. Because one of the things that is a breakdown in a product has to do with when the groups are not cooperating. It's really interesting, Conway's Law, because it is not hmm, it is not adequately addressed and it is not taken adequately seriously in business schools. I've done a colossal amount of reading from various business schools and I have an MBA. And competition is almost... <laughs> I want to be fair and say almost the only framework, but honestly, it is the only framework. It is the prevailing framework that everything else comes in. And I think it's because it's so easy. Competition is a framework that feels like it makes sense and it is easy and unthreatening to the status quo. It's easy and unthreatening to the patriarchy, too, because it's the way that most boys in the Western world, anyway, are raised, is to be competitive and to get one passed and to win against everyone else. And the really interesting thing about that is 
winning happens and as many good things do anything that you succeed in doing in competition is in spite of the competition not because of it competition i suppose may have some good points to it and that it might spur you along to do something a little different again it's too easy it's the cooperative piece that lets you win a competitive basketball player is only as good as the team cooperates and the team can only cooperate if its communication is good and the better the communication better the cooperation the better the outcome is it competitive yeah but that's secondary and i believe that's true for businesses certainly and i also think there's plenty of places where competition is unnecessary entirely in fact i would argue that competition is always by far the second in anything we do and that it can corrupt more easily than it can help cooperation in a family allows the family to get its business done and frees up the members to pursue their own work their own studies their own art in a way that competition does not competition fills everyone's time with comparison to one another and that comparison is going to go either of two ways it's going to go self side in which case people are looking at others and judging themselves as inferior or it's going to go outwards where everyone is judging someone inferior competition involves judgment and that judgment can erode our sense of self and erode our pleasure and our sense in others we have to judge ourselves by others to determine whether we're winning or losing now that's fine if we're just running a race honestly fine but the cooperation between people is by far the more important aspect it will the cooperation only takes place with the communication and the quality of the output the quality of the communication will show you how good the output is a product is especially good to see conway's law in action and of course that's where it was developed shoddy software shows that the members of various teams so the teams themselves did not work together interior and they did not work with each other from the exterior and obviously you can tell because the quality of the product is not seamless. Missions also fall apart when there is poor communication and poor cooperation. So if a nonprofit is not going to be able to serve its constituents as efficiently as possible, that's the quality and that's the product. And to some extent, there are places that do not really look at what is the product. Product or service is what it's called when you do business type talk. But the service in that case can be seen as a product. A lot of places, a lot of places settle and accept 
what they're doing as being the best that they could do if they're not in an active state of collapse. That is, well, for one thing, it's mediocrity. For another thing, it makes for an unsatisfying work life because it makes for an unsatisfying workplace. Instead, you can reverse engineer, first of all, from just stepping back and asking, are we, in fact, doing the best that we could do? And that is a dynamic, the best that we could do right now under these circumstances. Have we taken a couple days and looked at this? Have we invited others to give us the feedback that we need? Because we think we're doing perfectly well. So the way to use Conway's law to improve things, to adjust things, to reflect back ways to make everything better for everyone, and why would we not want to do that, is to radically look at how we take feedback. And feedback is also criticism, or rather, feedback can be many, many things, including criticism. All criticism is feedback. Not all feedback is criticism. The most important thing that if you are running a business or an organization, the most important thing that you can get from people is their feedback. Do whatever it takes to get feedback. And feedback is at least internal and external. But the external can also be people that you serve and people that you don't serve. Why don't they come to you? And it can be the community at large. Do they know that you're there? Do they support you? All of that criticism is feedback. It takes personal work to learn to be okay with negative feedback. It takes personal work to not take it personally. An organization is doing the best that it can right now under these circumstances, but that doesn't mean that it's the best work that it can do. A family is doing the best that it can under these circumstances, but that doesn't mean that it's doing the best that it could conceivably do. Feedback in any organization, and a family is an organization, involves listening to the people involved. So that would be an internal feedback to find out from your partners, from your kids, from really anybody that you're dissatisfied with outcomes. Those are the people whose feedback you need to hear. And of course, here's the corollary about communication. Too often, we frame communication as talking. Too often, we frame communication as going from the self outward. We can all stand around in a parking lot and yell to the void. We can just talk. If nobody listens, there's been no communication. We are taught how to talk from a very early age, again, because of the sense that that is communication. But even at that early age, if the people we are talking to do not listen, then we haven't been able to communicate. Communication has not occurred. Communication only works if there's output 
and that that output has been input elsewhere, has been taken in. And I think that's one of the things about Conway's Law. Conway's Law does not necessarily delve into all of this, but it does lend itself to this analysis because it uses the shorthand communication, even that hilarious little graphic of it with every team trying to kill the other teams. That's feedback. Did the other teams take in and respond appropriately to that negative feedback? Not necessarily. It's funny to be talking about this right now because the U.S. government is in a bizarre, bizarre place where people, I can't even conceive of the Congress going to work when a fairly significant portion of them tried to abduct and kill another significant portion of them. So taking in feedback does not mean acquiescing to that feedback. If your coworker wants to kill you, you do not have to change in order to accommodate their demands. You do not have to negotiate with terrorists. At that point, shut down that team. You make those decisions. It clarifies and speeds up those decisions. A team that refuses to cooperate with other teams is not a productive team. It's a drag on all the other ones. And it's interesting to me sometimes that we have, we have HR departments in our businesses. They're there to protect the business. I have rarely, if ever, I believe is fair to say, seen an HR team take on an active role to actually protect the business. Now, they're not allowed to, which is really the culture and and the base. But imagine if there was a team whose entire reason for being was to protect the integrity of an organization by making sure that organization was sustainable and strong, and so went in and did deep, deep communication and feedback skills and understood that the longevity of the organization was up to them. I would love to see this in nonprofits, honestly. I've worked with a lot of nonprofits, and this would be incredibly lovely to see (laughs) The problem is people are always going to be human and humans bring with them all of their baggage and all of their trauma baggage. So one of the ways to trick our brains into putting that baggage down for a minute is to use things like Conway's law. I'm not going to have time to go into the second law this week, but I will do it next week. Next up is a revisit to a conversation with an extraordinary drag queen for his divorce. Horace, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> so the the podcast has as its as its main topics the balancing of creativity, work, um, which is both work like creative work, but also like what actually keeps the door open, um, mm-hmm. and community. And I know that these things have been pretty much three balls in the air that you juggle all the time. So um, want to start by just telling telling people a little bit about what you do. Sure. So I run an entertainment company. We're located out of Northampton and we do things like a monthly burlesque show. We do 
a drag brunch at a venue in Holyoke. And soon I'm looking to start a competition show, like a drag competition show, which is great because we're just trying to bring fun and accessible events for adults in the Pioneer Valley. Mm-hmm. And does this, do you have a day job that keeps this thing going or is this what you do now full time for? So for the first like four years, I had a day job in addition to this while I was building. And now this is my full time job. Oh, nice. Is crazy, but nice. <laughs> <laughs> what makes it crazy? Well, you know, events are so random. You can never tell if you're going to have a packed house or if you're going to have like just enough to get by. And so it's it's this constant wonderful but stressful cycle of are people going to show up to this great thing that I've worked on for so long or (laughs) are they going to go to this other thing I don't know (laughs) and do you have to kind of like wait that out like do you have to kind of plan I'm the only it's not a perfect metaphor but you know when when kids are really little and they're picky eaters you can't like freak out over every meal you have to say well over the course of a month they ate food (laughs) (laughs) i mean we we definitely have busy seasons and slow seasons depending on the show the drag shows like the brunches never a slow season we always sell out every single month it's great but the burlesque show for whatever reason from may to august we get a huge cut in attendance it's like 200 100 to 200 less people in those summer months huh and I honestly don't know what it is. I thought it was the students at first, maybe the students leave, but I think it could be that Massachusetts is a horrible winter hellhole. And so when it gets warm, people are like, well, let's go do warm things. <laughs> <laughs> I never think of burlesque. Actually, if I were to think of burlesque as a seasonal thing, I would think that it would be a warm weather thing because people are taking their clothes off. Right, you would think. <laughs> it never happens that way. <laughs> That's really funny. Do you ever, like, poll audiences? What do you mean? Like, ask them? You know, oh, poll audiences. Yeah. You know, I've, I've found that asking for general feedback is a nightmare. It's <laughs> Honestly, if you ask a group of random people for feedback about your show they will tell you about a hundred things that you've already considered and which is great because you know it means you're on the right track but the helpful (laughs) suggestions are usually less than helpful (laughs) and so i've taken to just kind of trying to figure it out talking with other producers about their ebb and flow and really (laughs) relying on the professionals more than the audience because they mean well they always do but it can be frustrating. (laughs) It's really funny. (laughs) They don't know why they don't come. (laughs) Right? It's like they're just, and some people are just like, well, your burlesque show is every month, and this other thing is like the Green River Music Festival. It happens Mm -hmm. once a year, and you just happen to be on the same weekend. So I think our convenience is a little bit of a problem as well. Mm -hmm. We're just too consistent. Right. It's funny that it doesn't affect the brunch the same way. I know. I don't know what it is about brunch. And my brunch and burlesque audiences don't even have a lot of crossover as much as I try. Like some people just go to one. Some people go to the other. It's very rare that you can get people to go to both. That's really funny. I think I've only been to the burlesque. So, yeah. Although I, uh, members of my family have been to both. I know that. They're just big fans of yours. We all are. But 
So do you find that the business side, like, is, is that reward, like, not just financially rewarding or sustainable, but is it, does it have a creative piece to it too? Or is it just sort of what you do in order to get the creative piece done? I mean, I do the shows or I started doing the shows because I was looking for really a creative outlet. I was in grad school at the time. It was sucking the life out of me. It was, it was <laughs> 10 years of a PhD program. And then I just left because it was just, it really, it hurt to be there. It was a toxic environment. And so I used the burlesque show at first to kind of get out of that and release that energy and really give back to the community something fun to do. Because when we first moved to Northampton, it was like very queer friendly, great for families. But if you were just like a single adult person looking for a fun time, mm -hmm. there really wasn't a lot to do. And so we started just to get that energy out and to give other people a way to have fun. And now it's just something that really a show invigorates my spirit. It makes me feel good. It makes like it's very spiritually rewarding to oh, have that function with people. And and actually, that's an interesting point. So one of the things I've I've kind of touched on discussing sort of work and creativity with people has been just it's kind of because you just went right to it, which is the <laughs> sort of faith that happens. And, and, and it's both a faith that that what you're doing is like worthwhile and worthy and also that it will in some way pay off at least enough to continue doing it. Has that been your experience that you, you know? You got to put the time in, but then the faith of it. I mean, you have to have faith in what you're doing or no one else will really. And, mm. and I am my biggest cheerleader sometimes me and my husband who has been really great in all of this, but it's, it's been hard. Like starting the show, just the burlesque show. We started with like 70 people coming to a show and it grew over the course of we're on our eighth year now where we'll pack in sometimes 300 people. And a slow month is like 120 for us. Mm. So just just having the faith to be like, this hard work will pay off has has been an exercise in really believing in yourself and mm. your community. Because some days you're like, man, I have this June show coming up and I've sold literally four tickets to it. It's a week away, <laughs> four tickets. What is going on? And you just have to wait for that moment when the week of the show comes and it's Friday and people get paid and they're like, here's a hundred tickets. <laughs> and so I, I've been lucky in that I've been able to build a brand and a community of people who really like what we do. But I've seen shows that have not been as lucky in the same area. And a lot of that is just expectations and waiting it out. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What what's um I'll start with worst first. What's the um what's the biggest like performance disaster you've ever had or show disaster? Oh my goodness. We we've had a few disasters over the years and most of them involve technology. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so like we've had microphones die in the middle of performances. We've we've had like ACs break at the beginning of a show. Oh. We had a show at the Deuce where it was the hottest month of the year and they had run the AC constantly overnight. So the AC itself froze on their roof. <laughs> and so we got there and it was like a hundred degrees in the venue, oh. but the show went on anyway. Some pasties might've fallen off because they couldn't stick, <laughs> but the show goes on. 
And what's the most sublime? Do you have like a moment that you've like totally loved the best? I mean, for me, whenever I get to connect with someone on a personal level, it's really, really nice for me. And I get these moments a lot at shows. Part of my style, I guess, is making the experience as personal as possible for a room of hundreds of people, which sounds ridiculous, but I kind of, I take my hosting as a conversation with one person done over a microphone so that everyone feels like I'm talking to them. And then when you get off stage, you get to like talk about what's going on with their lives or why they came out to the show and really create those moments. And as someone who's super, super introverted, being on that stage and having those moments off stage with people in character is really like liberating and wonderful. Oh, that's neat. How did you get started? I used to work at a drag club when I was putting myself through undergrad. Well, I say putting myself through. My parents paid my very small tuition and I paid everything. Else. Oh yeah, that's legit. And so so I I worked at a nightclub and I worked at the door and people would come in and they would love the shows and it would be great. And I just got really interested in the concept of drag because the performers seemed so amazingly confident and they were like followed around like celebrities and they were, they looked like they were living their best life. And it really made me want to get involved in that scene, which in Texas, I was barely involved at all, but in Northampton, I just did it myself, opened doors where I needed to open them and, here I am now still doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and do you want to do you want do you have like ambitions to grow the you know grow the company every year or or is there a place that you feel like it stays kind of what it's doing or I have a very specific growth strategy with my shows. I don't like to start anything new until I feel like the things I'm already doing are really comfortable like they're really kind of self-sufficient. So I started Drag Brunch after Burlesque had been going for like three and a half years-ish because Burlesque was doing great. And then Drag Brunch will be five years in July. And so I'm now starting a competition show for drag performers so that we can kind of revitalize the area. Uh Because what I found is that drag performers in this area specifically have nowhere to perform except for my brunch show. And at this place called the X Room in Springfield, and that's barely attended those shows, which is sad because they do a really good job. So I'm trying to like grow drag from the ground up. And I think that doing so in a way that's kind of spaced after your success has settled a little bit is the only way to grow. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. And then do you find that you like, is there a piece where you have to grow the audience and how do you do that or is it more of like a mickey and judy will put on a show and you know or or like that what's that baseball movie if you build it they will come do you have Uh to go find like an i don't want to say educate audiences because nobody likes being educated but somehow get people to realize that this would be a really fun thing to go do yeah i mean it's harder and harder to get the word out nowadays because like I would say growing an audience starts with having a show that's poorly attended because every mm-hmm. time you start something, you'll get, you'll get a few people who are curious and a few people who just kind of know who you are and what you do. And then all my shows have really grown by word of mouth. Like I invest in advertising, I flyer, I pay for Facebook ads, all that stuff. But word of mouth is 
the most powerful thing for my local shows. Huh. Because, like, someone will come to a drag brunch and be like, oh, man, I just had the best time. I'm going to tell eight of my friends, and then those people will come as a group next time. And really, having that personal connection with people helps that a lot. Right, right. Have you now? Have you ever thought of instructing anybody how to do this? Is there is there demand for that? Like, well, I do with burlesque. So I do like a mentorship program with burlesque now. We used to do an amateur competition to kind of get people to dip their toe into the burlesque world. But what I found was people didn't get enough critique and when you did give them critique because i would give them like one act critique they wouldn't take it to heart they wouldn't take it seriously they just kind of did what they wanted to do so now i have a like a program with people who are interested in starting burlesque where i take them through the whole process from character development to like song choice act creation movement all those processes so that the people that i'm putting on stage are growing with the show in a way that makes sense for the show Mm. they're not just doing their own thing that they think is burlesque they're doing their own thing plus what i'm doing with them which is nice yeah that seems like something that would be attractive outside the valley actually outside you know the northampton area i can't think that there's a lot of people that provide that kind of education for people right and i've thought about doing it as a class but it works well as a one-on-one experience Mm. because you just get that personalized feedback for people and i do it over the course of like a six-month period for their first act Mm. so it helps them get a lot of time to get over a lot of their nerves because the biggest hurdle for people starting burlesque is what will people think of me? What do I think of myself in this moment? And so kind of having that emotional support as well as the act building support has been really helpful. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a podcast about balancing work, community, and creativity. That's actually really interesting. Can you talk some more about that, about like how you deal with really other people's fear? Mm-hmm. I mean, I like to think of starting out in performance as really helping someone go through this journey at their own pace. So some people are so ready to get on that stage. They're just like, I'm an exhibitionist. I'm ready to do this. Put me on right now. And other people are like, this seems empowering. How can I work through this process? And so with them, we talk a lot about what their fears are so that I can help them realize that, you know, they're kind of looking at those societal expectations of what beauty is or what sexiness is or what even performance is. And they have to kind of look into that most authentic part of themselves and try to embrace that first. I was just I was legitimately just talking about this with one of my new burlesque babies last night who she's doing such a good job on stage, but she's still reserved about like who's going to see her perform. She's scared her mom might see on Facebook. And I'm like, you have to own this part of yourself. If you don't want your mom to see this, then you're not embracing who you are right now in this moment. You can't be simultaneously embarrassed and empowered. Mm. Like you have to pick one. And so it's a lot, it's a lot of conversations really. And just working through those fears with people, but it doesn't always work. Like people do still drop out. And when you get those moments where people find it to be overwhelming, it's not, you know, it's not an attack on me. 
It's not an attack on what I do. It's just that they're working through their stuff and they have to come like to this decision in their own time to perform, if ever. Mm. Well, it's funny because what you're talking about sort of strikes me, and I mean, I may have this wrong, but it's just a, it's a sort of interesting intellectual continuum from what seems like one side, which is drag, which is a character where you're made up to be so different than who you are. And then the other side, burlesque, where you are literally naked on stage at the end. Right. There's, there's two very different kinds of vulnerability with drag and burlesque, because burlesque is such a physical vulnerability. You're really just naked. Your body is exposed for everyone to see. Whereas drag is it's really more of a societal vulnerability in a lot of ways because there is a lot of discrimination between like towards people who are doing things with gender like if you're going against the gender norms if you're a gender criminal to margaret atwood that (laughs) (laughs) it's just like it's a different kind of risk but drag it's much easier to hide your real life personality whereas burlesque like it's a Google search away. So there's definitely different levels of vulnerability there. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. And actually, so I have some questions for you that I've kind of struggled with because I enjoy, I enjoy all these performances. I, I enjoy just, I love the stage anyway. I just really enjoy, well, I be, enjoy being on it, but I enjoy being audience too. Um, mm-hmm. So one question that has <laughs> come up repeatedly with my family members is the tricky situation about, Gender performance and drag. Well, let me let me back up a little bit because I just had this really really great conversation with a, with a um, colleague of mine because I had been on the periphery now of three conversations. And they were all conversations that involved some international students. They all involved, like, politeness, where you don't want to come slamming down as, like, you know, Captain America kind of a thing. But Mm -hmm. all of them involved conversations in which someone was making a joke. And the joke was that being gay was inherently funny. Like that, that was, that was the punchline and each one of them. So I kind of talked it out with this guy trying to figure out, you know, what would he have wanted me to say if he were in the room so that, you know, I didn't feel like a colluding jerk. And we kind of thought of some good ways to sort of approach it. But, but sometimes I feel like, you know, I mean, I watch drag race and things like that. And I, and I wonder sometimes when when the performative aspect comes into the punchline is a guy in a frock. And I and I'm like, but wait, how is that? (laughs) How is how does the comedy necessarily start or end there? In other words, does it mean does it mean that gender performance is funny, or does it mean that women inherently are funny, or does it mean that men dressed as women are inherently funny? And if so, me in jeans isn't particularly funny. Yeah, and I figure you're a much better person to ask about this than you know people around the dinner table. Right, drag. Yeah. Drag has become so mainstream right now that it's it's for us it's harder to do a nighttime show than it is to do a daytime show because people see drag race they see these kinds of things as becoming more and more normal but even at brunch I would say you get two crowds you get the like LGBTQ and ally crowd who understand what drag is who understand the performance a little bit more and then you get the freak show crowd which sees this as, oh, look at these men in dresses. Isn't this outrageous? Isn't this hilarious? And what I find for myself is that the way I do drag puts a lot of those people 
in a position where they're like, what the hell is this? <laughs> they're like, this is not what I expected. This is not a man trying to dress up and look like a woman. And in those moments, you really get to educate people about what drag is and isn't. Because historically, drag has been female impersonation. And if you look at more modern drag, it's really more about creating a character and having that character be outrageous in some way. And that's where the mm. humor in modern drag comes from. Mm. It's the outrageousness. It's not the gender like trick. It's the, oh, this person is doing this act about being like a Catholic nun, but they're also snorting a ton of fake cocaine. It's like <laughs> it's playing with expectations of what we think gender and society should be doing. Like, like what we're told gender and society should be doing and kind of flipping those. And that's where the humor comes in modern drag. Whereas classic drag is a little bit often misogynistic. It's often like not great for women generally. And I think more and more people are getting away from that, which mm. I love because I think, you know, using terms like fishy and really like playing on caricatures of womanhood is an ugly way to practice drag. Yeah, it's kind of the my, you know, my sort of general uncomfortableness with a movie that I otherwise totally love, which is some like it hot where you're just like, oh, oh, you punched mm -hmm. down there, guys. <laughs> it was getting funny yeah. and then you punched down. Totally. And I think there's a lot of that cultivated just through how we're taught to be men and women growing up. Like there's you know, the whole gender binary, boys are supposed to do, do this, girls are supposed to do this, and drag really flips that on its head. And honestly, so does burlesque, because burlesque is about this empowering experience that, yeah, it involves stripping down, but it's also really funny, and it's really, like, this character-driven and story-driven, so it's less about the tease and the strip and more about how you get there. Mm. That's yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, let me think. Oh, yeah. So one question I had is, is um, what would you tell your like yourself uh, a while ago? If you could go back in time and and uh, give yourself some advice or give yourself some encouragement, what would it be? Oh, man, I would tell myself to I mean, I'm a risk taker anyway when it comes to shows, but I would tell myself to take more risks and worry less about what people are thinking. Because once I got to that point where I was just like taking risks and to everyone else be damned, that's when my shows really started being magical because I wasn't worried about what will this audience think if I book this kind of performer or that kind of performer or this kind of act or whatever. And, you know, Northampton is really the perfect place to take risks anyway. Mm. So I should have been doing it from the beginning. <laughs> what kind of risks? What are, you, what are you talking about more specifically for that? So when we started the burlesque show, we really were leaning more towards like what was classically understood as burlesque because that's what people knew how to consume as entertainment. Which is kind and, of gypsy and Right, kind of, kind of like, you know, feathers and fans and whatever. And then the more we were doing it, the more we were like, this should be a weirder show. And so we started booking things that were weirder, <laughs> working with people who were weirder. And audiences have some historically, like, 
starkly different reactions to things. Like, for instance, uh, we had a performer, Lily LeVamp, who used to do this act where she was a nun. I'm talking about nuns a lot. I don't know why. <laughs> where she was a nun, she had a pig mask on, and she takes off the habit, and underneath is like a bondage suit with pork chops, like real pork chops all over her. And that was one of the moments that people... <laughs> hated or they loved <laughs> but for years and even still today people are like that pork chop act is it coming back <laughs> and they have different reasons for asking but that was one of the risks that really like made our show get more word of mouth because people were like this was the fucking weirdest thing <laughs> <laughs> well mel brooks says everything gets funnier if there's a nun in it <laughs> well, it worked for me. I love that act. Other people, not so much. Some people love it. Some people don't. But it sounds they remembered like a, it. It sounds like a uh, Lady Gaga kind of right? spin-off. Right? It was prior to the meat dress. Wow. <laughs> she was a trendsetter for that Lily LeVant. <laughs> Just the logistics of being covered with meat. I'm, that's going to stay with me for a little while. <laughs> Think it was about real that. gross. It was so gross. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, so tell me a little bit about the, the community piece of this, because not to get too crazy intellectual, but right now I've been reading a lot of Alfred Adler, um, psychologist from the 30s, and he talked a lot about how unhappiness to him is caused by sort of imbalance in how you belong in your social world and, and what you put back in it. And balance comes when you set aside attention and time to be part of a community as well. Mm -hmm. um. So for me, when I started the shows, I, in addition to just trying to escape the rigors and horrors of grad school, I, I was new to this area. I'd only been here a few years. My only connection to locals was with grad students. And I didn't know anyone. And then as I started talking with people, they were like, we don't even know how to make friends as adults. Like, we don't know where to go to do things and have fun. We go to clubs or we go to shows or we go to whatever, but we only really talk to the people that we're with. And so as I was building burlesque, I tried to think about more ways to not only like get a community of people going, but to get them to interact more. And so we started doing things like community, giving back to the community is what we call games. So we started doing interactive games and people were weirdly meeting each other. And then they would see each other at another show because they played a game together and then they would start talking and we would encourage like moments of, hey, meet your neighbor for a second or we're going to have this intermission. People are going to go smoke outside. Find yourself a smoking buddy. Like little tiny ways people would start to get more and more connected at the shows. And for me, it was really important to like provide a safe space for especially the LGBTQ community. Because when you're in an area like Northampton, they say every bar is a queer bar, but it's not true. Just because you can go somewhere with your partner doesn't mean you're like interacting with the community in a way that's meaningful. Like in Texas, for instance, I lived in San Antonio for a long time and we had a gay part of town and it was a very distinct section of the city. And in that section of the city, you met a lot of people who were like you because you were looking for that connection. Whereas here, if you go to every bar being a queer bar, then you're not really meeting people. You're not interacting in the same way. You're not relying on each other in the same way. 
So I tried to create queer spaces, and it's been mostly successful. And then, how do you do? You cultivate that? Are there like do people? I don't know, kind of find their way around social media together with you or find their way around, you know. I mean, I absolutely cultivate it in ways that, I mean, I'm just very forward with it. So mm. if you go to a burlesque show, I'm like, this is a queer space. We are welcoming and supportive to the LGBTQ community. If that's not for you, we already have your admission fee. So enjoy the show. <laughs> right? And by being upfront with it, what I've found over time is that we get less of the like Confederate flag waving white straight dudes who are just coming to see naked people. Right. I wondered about and that, get, actually. Yeah, it's I mean, really, by, just by existing in the show and being an over the top drag queen, we filter out a lot of people who I wouldn't want there anyway. Hmm. And so, and those are the, those are the, um, freak show kind of. Those are oftentimes the freak show people. Absolutely. Yeah. Because when you, when you come forward as like a educated, progressive leftist, like feminist drag queen, it, it makes people go, oh, well, I didn't really sign up for this. Shit. Or, or they're like, yeah, this is great. The, this is great crowd that has been the community that we've cultivated. And do you find that, like, besides sort of being the nexus of it, are you? Do you feel supported by it? Um, I do, really. Like, I'm very active on Facebook because of the shows, and it's a good way to connect with people who come like to your shows. And what I found is that if I'm going through it, or like if something's going on in life in general, people who come to the shows are supportive of me in that moment. And then they'll talk to me about things at the show itself. So you, it really helps me in that I've cultivated a lot of relationships with people that I normally wouldn't have met. Mm. Were you mentored? Did you, did you have a mentor yourself? I did not. I, so the way I do drag, when I started doing drag, was very frowned upon in in this area in the area I came from it's like I was bucking the system a little bit and so people initially when I started drag brunch wouldn't work with me <laughs> they, they were like oh I don't know who this person is look at them they paint by numbers blah 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 and so I would just work with people who kind of understood what I did or connections from out of town that I had from like friends from burlesque world and over time, it's gotten better to where people who were trash talking me now work with me. <laughs> That's got to be hard. <laughs> it's for me. It's great because like whores is about love. She's about building community, building bridges, whatever. And so to get someone who used to be not about you at all. Now, like promoting your shows and working with you and like spreading the gospel of your love is, is, is a really nice feeling. <laughs> it's funny. One of the big assignments I have for summer for my program that I'm in this year is um, uh, a lot of stuff on change management and leadership. <laughs> and yeah. I, I have to say that whole piece of like getting people to change their very you know, biased minds that were set against you to be somebody for you is a huge amount of real estate to cover. It's, it's been a crazy journey to be, <laughs> to be honest. Like when we started drag brunch, for instance, there was another organization in town 
who was not about us doing a drag brunch. They did one the year before, and they do, like, brunches almost every year now. It's like a yearly thing. And so they wrote me an email that was very like, you can't do this show. We already do something like it. And I was like, how about we collaborate? How about we cross promote? How about we do these things? And that just made them angry. And so for years, for years, they were not about me, hated me, blah, blah, blah. And it's only just recently turned to a different direction where those people are are like more about what I'm doing and nicer and working with <laughs> nicer. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're not going away. I mean, you gotta kind of, people have to kind of make their peace with that. <laughs> and, you know, I like all kinds of drag. I like all kinds of performance styles. I'm very open to lots of different things. And I think the more people just kind of get over that and realize I'm not here to threaten them. I'm here to, you know, enhance what's already going on in the community. Like, I'm just doing my own thing. Right. Which is great. Right. And then, so this kind of goes into some other things. Is, um, you know, a lot of a lot of the stuff, this is one of the reasons I have wanted to talk to people that are doing interesting things, is the things that stop people from doing interesting things. We talked a bit about the fear I'm actually really impressed that you did this without mentors because I think it's really hard. But then what about things like rejection or staying strong in the face of haters? Really? I mean, you know, yeah. How do you do that? (laughs) I mean, I my motto is collect the haters like trophies, because once people start really hating on what you're doing, you know, you're doing something fun. You know, you're doing something right and strong and they're like mad about it. And so historically, I've always had haters, always, which has been great because it it gives me, you know, that validation that I'm doing something they find threatening. I mean, I guess that's messed up in a way, (laughs) (laughs) but I, I, it, it used to get to me a lot when people would say nasty things about me or my shows or the hard work that I was putting in. Yeah. And I realized that those are the people who aren't coming to your shows anyway. Those are the people who want you to fail. Those are the people who are doing something else that they're like, oh, you're trying to step on my toes. But none of that really important. If you embrace the people that love what you do, then your shows will be about love. And we'll respond to that. Well, and how do you take care of yourself in that? And just in all of this, actually, not only in the face of negativity, but also just in general, because I know you work very, very hard doing these. So self-care, man, that is the thing I'm worst at, really. I think that relaxing is much harder when you're not only running your own small business, but relying on it for income. Hmm. So I find that I work at least 50 hours a week on a normal week, just prepping, doing social media management, flyering. I mean, I do everything for my business. I do all the design work, all the print work, all the stories, all the press, everything. And so self-care is my hardest thing. Marijuana helps, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> it's, legal, it's, it's legal now in the state legal of Massachusetts. In Massachusetts. <laughs> legal in Massachusetts. It does help mm. because it forces me to relax for a moment. And recently, my husband has been very adamant about, like, we need to set a time to cut off our work at night. Like, if it's 8 o'clock and I'm still working and he's still working, we, like, go to each other and check in. Mm. And we're like, do we need to keep working? Probably. Should we take a break? 
Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I then, mean, it's good to have a support system, really, I guess. So I think I would work more tirelessly without my husband checking in. Is there <laughs> diminishing returns when that happens, though? You know? Mm, I mean... <laughs> Sometimes, sometimes I wake up at like four in the morning and I'm like, I should not have relaxed so hard and I just start working. <laughs> but, you know, I think if your brain is constantly going, then you're also missing things. And so you have to step back. So I find that if I take a break from working on something for the show, that I'll realize I can do something more efficiently mm. if, I, if I haven't looked at it for like 12 hours or I'll see something that I haven't seen before. So the return in that way is is increased <sighs> but i'm still stressed that i should be working <laughs> <laughs> well then and that actually leads me to my next question which is i know this is pretty consuming but what do you like to do besides besides so i really enjoy the beach in the summer <laughs> <laughs> nice like as as frequently as i can get into that form of nature i will do that but I'm also like a gaming person. I have a lot of nerdy friends who play a lot of nerdy games. And that to me is really great because it, it gives me a chance to organize my thoughts in a different way and just kind of let go of the real world. And are these, are these board games or are these sort of like multi? So we'll play like Dungeons and Dragons style games and we'll also play board games and video games. We're like a big gaming household. <laughs> That's very, it's a very broad, broad base of gaming. It's, it's lovely though, because it really gives you an opportunity to just forget about things because you're so focused on this other like goal, this other world that I, I just, I'm not thinking about my ticket sales or who I need to book or why a certain venue hasn't put our ticket link up or whatever. Right, right. And, and then are there enough, here's just sort of a sort of more specifically back to some specific questions is there enough not just audience but spaces in the area or would you want to like start your own vaudeville theater that was a theater that you owned there are no spaces available in the area the spaces are horrible in Mm. this valley Mm. and so what i find is i use a lot of places where the lgbt community wouldn't generally go so like a lot of things that I've done have been at BFWs, which are wonderful spaces to rent, but there's a lot of conservative people at BFWs. So it's kind of in direct opposition, what I do and what the venue is kind of for. Yeah, they're kind of misaligned. Um, they're totally misaligned. And so I've tried to look for other spaces here, but you know, certain spaces won't even accept what I do because they say it's too lowbrow. Other spaces only book out of town performers. And it's like me and all of the local producers here are looking for spaces to make them money. And there's a wall. We just can't get in. Mm. And I've thought about the possibility of owning my own space someday so that there is accessible space. But it's just a huge financial financial investment that I'm just not at yet. Yeah, it's another job. Yeah. Well, I know there there are two downtown churches that are lying open. (laughs) I know. I know. I mean, and really, Iron Horse owns a ton of spaces locally that just aren't being used. Like, they own the Divas building. They own the Church by Smith that was supposed to be a venue. Right. Like, they're just sitting on a bunch of open spaces 
Whereas I would love to be sitting on one open space. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I just the, the visual of horrors divorce coming from one of those churches would be just I would love that. It would be so amazing. Yeah, it would be really right? I I'm really good at organizing shows and kind of getting good entertainment value from people and marketing it to an audience that's ready for it. But I just don't have anywhere to do a lot of these things. And how did you learn how to do that? Just barnstorming or? It's just part of my general OCD, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm really good at organizing and putting things together and making sure things run smoothly. Because if a problem comes up, I don't see it as the end all. Oh, no, this is a problem. I look for like three solutions. And one of those solutions has to work. And so that kind of stick to itness is really my strong suit. Oh, that's good. That's actually a very good tip, honestly. <laughs> Got any more tips? <laughs> I mean, really, just stick to it. If you want to do a thing and you think it can be successful, do it. Go for it. Risk something on it. Like, no one is going to drop things into your lap. You really have to go out and get them. Mm. Wow, that is a perfect place to end this, I think, unless there's anything else uh, you want to add. That's no, <laughs> that's I, like total I, wisdom from, <laughs> from a fabulous drag queen. <laughs> I mean, I think I've talked so much. <laughs> oh, no, it's wonderful. Thank you so much, Horace. And, and I'll make sure that I, um, you know, I'll put your website and things in the, in the notes. Um, awesome. But thank you for your time. That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com, that's with the number nine, to access show notes, find resources, and join the conversation. Thanks for listening.